The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up, we're joined by Adam Crafton and Roshane Thomas to dig a little deeper into Manchester United's win at West Ham. We'll also talk about the future of Declan Rice. Uh, our Tottenham writer, Charlie Eccleshare, saw Chelsea breeze past Spurs on Sunday. He'll be with us to talk about that and the rivalry uh, that's developed at boardroom level between the two clubs. And the Athletic's Manchester City writer, Sam Lee, uh, will share his take on the Pep Guardiola comments about his club's fans. No ball! Saved by De Gea! It's an incredible stop by David De Gea that looks as though it's rescued the win for Manchester United. Well, we'll start the pod with some of the talking points from the game at the London Stadium on Sunday between West Ham and Manchester United, uh, both the Athletics West Ham writer Roshane Thomas and Adam Crafton were there. Uh, Roshane, let me start with you. Do you think what happened at the end will hang over West Ham or do you think it will be brushed off quite quickly? I hope it will be brushed off quite quickly, uh, Mark, because it's one that's caused a lot of debate. Prior to Noble coming on, I tweeted that David Moyes is a genius and a lot of people have been laughing at me since that tweet. So it just goes to show how things can... You know, go one way and then go the other. But look, I, I can see why David Moyes brought on Mark Noble, arguably the best penalty taker at West Ham. The last time he missed prior to yesterday was five years, and that was December 2016 against Burnley. So all, it's, it was written in the stars for him to score the equaliser, but unfortunately he wanted to be. But I think the main problem for West Ham right now is that Barra Noble, they don't have an obvious penalty taker. You've got Declan Rice, got the self-confidence, scored a penalty against Sheffield United in February, but he missed his last penalty against West Brom in May. You have Antonio, who missed his last penalty against Newcastle. You have Jesse Lingard, who also missed a penalty when he was on loan. So that's the issue for West Ham right now. You haven't got an office penalty taker barring Mark Noble. But people miss penalties, Adam. And th- this, is, this is what I found quite interesting in the aftermath of it. You know, graphics coming up on West Ham's last five penalties. You know, Lingard scored one, Lingard missed one. Rice has missed one. Antonio has missed one. But watching that game with, with the Athletics' own Alan Shearer... He went, you know, I missed, I don't know, three a season, I think he said, before then going, oh, go on, ask me how many I scored a season. But <laughs> but the point being that even great penalty takers miss every now and then. Yeah, and also this whole thing of, you know, oh, Declan Rice missed, missed his last one. I mean, the only way that West Ham are going to get a new penalty taker is by trusting someone to start taking them, them regularly. And I do have sympathy with David Moyes because... You know, I, I was actually sat with West Ham fans yesterday. I think one of the things that was said, certainly was said on Sky, I think, after the game, that, you know, Noble came on completely cold. Well, I saw Mark Noble warming up in front of me for about 15 minutes, I think, between 60 to 80 minutes. He was he was up and down that touchline. So he wasn't completely cold. The only thing is, I don't think David Moyes would have done this if it was at any other moment in the game. No. If this was a penalty... 60 minutes into the game, 30 minutes into the game, you just trust the players on the pitch. That's the thing I found a bit odd, but it was, it was an amazing theatre moment. You know, you're, you're, in, you're in the stadium, you've got this guy who can't save penalties, the data tells us, <laughs> against this guy who only scores penalties. And as theatre, it was absolutely incredible. But I understand why David Moyes did it. I also understand why people would be pissed off with it. I wouldn't judge him really either way in terms of you know you're a good manager or a bad manager for that decision I remember the Europa League final where 
you know, Dean Henderson had been cold for 120 minutes on, on the substitutes bench and everyone was saying, why wasn't he brought on for David De Gea to, to save the penalties? Um, admittedly, De Gea had 11 goes at it rather than, rather than just one in the Europa League final. Um, but it, but it, it was just one of those, it was an extraordinary moment. And it was, you know, it was, I thought it was a really good save as well um, in terms of the distance he got on the save. I suppose, going back to it from the West Ham perspective as well, it's not going to massively affect Declan Rice, is it? But it does all of a sudden put a big spotlight, as, as you said, Roshane, on, on West Ham's penalties. It has now become a story, has that? going forward for sure and listen we've seen West Ham make great progress on and off the field in terms of recruitment off the recruitment behind the scene in terms of people in the recruitment team but quietly the one area they haven't improved is penalty taking that's the one area that has just been the same in terms of miss after miss so I hope he doesn't have an impact on morale but Declan someone like Declan he's always going to be self-confident like you know what I'll just score the next one if I'm given opportunity. That's the type of person he is. And I think, because I put a tweet out this morning saying, listen, who should be West Ham's regular penalty taker? People say it should be Thomas Solcek, it should be Cyprian Rama, it should be Declan Rice, it should be Aaron Cresswell, someone said it should be Craig Dawson. <laughs> Everyone's just split right now. No one's really sure. So, yeah, hopefully moving forward, because listen, we know Martin Noble's not going to play week in, week out. It's in his final year at West Ham. He's 34 right now. So they need to make that transition to have a natural penalty taker moving forward. For both of you there, and you can go first, Adam, uh, did Declan Rice <laughs> look a hundred million pound footballer, less than a hundred million pound footballer, more than a hundred million pound footballer? I thought he was okay. I thought there was a period in the second half where he really took control of the game. I think it was probably between fifty-five to seventy-five minutes, which was probably West Ham the period of the game where United drifted most and West Ham looked a bit more in control. But actually, I thought Man United's midfield controlled a large part of the game yesterday. The thing with Declan Rice, and I think it's something Roshane wrote about last week, was he seems to be really keen to develop into this driving midfielder who carries the ball, you know, a bit like, I think Roshane said in his piece, a bit like Yaya Toure used to do and Patrick Vieira. And the thing that I, that, and I like seeing that from him, and he did elements of that with England, particularly in it, against Italy in the final uh, in the summer as well. The thing that I still don't see from him necessarily is a bit like, if you were to compare him to a Michael Carrick, for example, who was brilliant at passing the ball forward with purpose and finding those players who are between the lines. I still don't see that from Declan Rice. And if I'm Pep Guardiola or Oli Gunnar Solskjaer looking for my next number six, who can really not just win the ball in midfield and carry the ball in midfield, but control a game in midfield, I don't think he's as good yet as Fernandinho or Fabinho in terms of passing the ball forward with purpose. But he's still young, he can learn that. But I think he's still a little bit short of that. And if you're going to spend £100 million on a holding midfielder, I want that from him now. Adam, I appreciate the compliment part. I'll buy you a box of chocolates as a gift. I'm definitely appreciate it, bro. <laughs> um, well, I'll start by saying Declan Rice is the real deal. He is the real deal. The young kids, they have a term right now called different gravy. And that is the best description right now for Declan Rice. 22, keeps getting better. The goal he scored against Dynamo Zagreb, absolutely brilliant solo run. He scored a similar goal against Hampton last season. In fact, he won a similar one against Leicester, which hit the crossbar. He has read his locker, but as I've touched on, the next step for Declan Rice right now is to score more goals. So last season, he scored two league goals and 32 league appearances. And as you as you mentioned, Adam, he cited the likes of Yaya Torre, Patrick Vieira, players who wants to try and emulate. And I think Rice can get to that level. And I'm not sure if you can see on this podcast, but it really pisses me off when I hear pundits say, ah, oh, play Declan Rice as centre-back. No, do not play this guy as centre-back. Yes, he's good, he can play there, but he'll be so limited in terms of playing as centre-back. We've seen the, the, the transition he makes to trying to become more box-to-box midfielder. 
in my opinion, West Ham have one of the best midfield partnerships right now. And Thomas Sorchuk and Declan Rice, both so young. Everything right now is, is heading in a good direction for Declan Rice. Is he worth 100 million? He is worth 100 million. That's how much he means to West Ham because he's that good. Generational talent. And listen, in, I think it was February, Moises asked about, during part of the game against Leeds United, Rice's long-term future was topic of, dis- of, uh, of discussion. And Moyes said, listen, he's worth far, far more than 100 million. Far, far more than 100 million. And that was before he started in the Euros for England. But he's worth that to West Ham. Is it, I, I don't think, is he worth that to Manchester United or Manchester City? I can see a club paying the region of 60 to 80 million for Declan Rice. I think that's realistic. Man City being Fernandinho was in the last year, so he could be a long-term replacement. You're looking at Man United, I know they played reasonably good in midfield, but you've got Fred, still question marks over him. I think Scott McTominay is a really good player, so him and Rice could form a good partnership. I think realistically, those are two clubs that Rice could join next season. I wonder whether Rice and McTominay are a bit too similar. If you look at wanting to be that box-to-box, the Torre, Patrick Vieira figure... And and Manchester United are looking more for someone to tick it over. I mean, ironically, the best midfield pass between the lines was from Nemanja Matic, but Nemanja, Nemanja Matic hasn't got a long-term future at Manchester United. So I do wonder whether, whilst United, by all indications, like him and are looking at him, I do wonder whether he is a, whether him and McTominay are a bit too similar. Yeah, and I totally understand what you're saying, Michelle, but I don't I don't agree that he needs to score more goals. Declan Rice you know in the way that you have to, you look at teams like Man City Liverpool Chelsea now they don't expect their holding midfielders to score goals they don't really want their holding midfielders to drive beyond the you know beyond the attackers at times and things like that I mean that's quite a it's an early 2000s thing that we'd expect from our midfielders if I was Declan Rice I'd be concentrating on getting my ball retention as good as possible and passing the ball with purpose forwards because that's what that's what you need. You know, he's he's brilliant at reading the game. He's really good at competing. But for him to go in as a number six, a, a, cha- a club that's in the Champions League, he needs to pass the ball and win the ball because the players in front of him will do that. those bits that he's trying to, to add to his game. I think, and if I'm Guardiola, Solskjaer, Tuchel, that's what I'm looking at from Declan Rice. I'm not worried if he's scoring five goals or ten goals. Yeah, Adam, now I'm not so sure if I'm buying your chocolates, pal. You just, you just broke my heart. Now. <laughs> you, 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 you broke my heart, Adam. But all, all jokes aside, I, I, I think Rice should look to score more goals. I really do because let's say he joins a Champions League chasing team, right? We all know strikers get all the all the headlines, but if you're midfield and you can add five or ten goals, immediately that sets you up a different level. And Rice has in his locker. Martin Keel said it in commentary last week, he's getting better and better. 22, no one there's prime. The scary thing with Declan Rice is, Lord knows how good you'll be when he's 27, 26. That's the scary thing about Declan Rice. Future England captain, in my opinion. And I think he's definitely capable of scoring more goals. He really is. He has that in his locker, driving runs, interceptions, good read of the game, only 22. It's just so scary in terms of Rice's development. And us West Ham fans, right? We've sort of been a bit annoyed in the sense where Rice will play, well, I also have like one bad game for England. Everyone's like, oh, who's this guy? So rubbish. Why on earth is he worth 100 million? But if you watch the guy on a weekly basis, you see he just keeps improving, keeps getting better. And he's got a great team he's working under David Moyes with culture stuff. I'm not sure you're getting chocolates from me, Rashane, if you come on here quoting Martin Keogh. <laughs> uh, so, God love him. Um, um, just a final one then on how West Ham view the Jesse Lingard situation. As soon as Lingard went up to warm up, he just knew he was going to score the winning goal. 
You just knew he was going to score the winning goal. But credit to Lingard because his celebration were rather subdued. So it shows how much respect he has for West Ham. Listen, the start's all along, but it's going to, it's going to be very unlikely for Lingard to rejoin West Ham. Oli got a social media very clear to David Moyes that, listen, he still features part of his plans. Even for Lingard, he wants to stay at Man United and fight for his place in the team. Yes, he had a great long spell at West Ham, scored nine goals in, four, in 16 league appearances, but ultimately... He's out of contract, though, this summer, Roshane, so they're just going to play the patient game, West Ham? Or do they do they expect him to re-sign? I personally believe he'll re-sign. He could play the patient game and wait till January, but... But you think of someone like Lingard, even last season, he's got a young young daughter. There were times last season when Moyes gave him an extra time to go back to Manchester, spend time with family. So that's also going to factor in his decision. So listen, it was great in terms of him playing for West Ham, got back into the England squad. But I think now Lingard's looking to, you know, stay at Man United and, you know, keep playing in their team. Adam? A bit like so many things. If you'd have asked me four days ago, I'd have said, you know, it's just a matter of time really before Lingard, <laughs> you know, leaves Man United because they've just got so many options. But actually, the more the more I think about it, when you have those players like Ronaldo and Pogba and Bruno, Sancho, Greenwood, Lingard offers something different in terms of he provides you know that sort of more selfless approach to forward play, uh, the pressing, the running, and I think what you might see, particularly when Man United have a big run of games in October, November, where they play direct sort of top six rivals, I think Lingard will play quite a big part in those games because. I mean, I watched Ronaldo closely yesterday live in the stadium and his, I mean, his movement is incredible in the penalty area, in the final third, unbelievable. But he doesn't do anything else. I mean, he really, really, and I'm not saying that as a criticism, he's conserving himself so that he can decide games um, in the right areas. But you're, you're carrying a player. And if you're carrying a player in that way, you then need people who are, going above and beyond the usual expectations off the ball. And Jesse Lingard does that. And it's why, you know, when Man United played first couple of games, Dan James was playing um, in those first few games. And that's because Solskjaer clearly wants that balance of players who are technically outstanding, but also, you know, you need players that have those physical attributes as well. And Lingard obviously has the technical side as well, as we saw with the goal. Uh, Roshane, thank you very much for coming on. Cool, take care. See you, mate. Next on the pod, on to Tottenham and the Athletic Spurs writer Charlie Eccleshire is with uh, myself and Adam. What positives can you find, Charlie, after the Chelsea game? Well, the first half was good. The, the mood actually at the stadium was pretty positive during the first half and at half time. And actually at the end of the game, I went, went onto Twitter on my phone, having not been on it since half time, because uh, I'd had it up on my computer. And, and it was all the kind of, this is the best half we've played in ages. Let's bottle this. You know, this is the way forward. Um, you know, it was more front-footed, less kind of passive and reactive as it has been. So that was the positive. Obviously, it, I know that sounds a bit ridiculous given it was a game they lost 3-0 and got absolutely battered in the second half. Yes, they did get battered in the second half. What's the overall view? Because they discussed it on Sky and on Match of the Day too. the role of Harry Kane, mm-hmm. because that to a lot of people looks very worrying mm-hmm. at the start of this season. Yeah, I mean, it's... What four four league games and he hasn't scored, uh, which is that in itself is very unusual. Yesterday he was in this kind of left inside left forward position, which seemed a bit strange. Uh, yeah, it's a big concern. You know, Kane needs to be playing really, really, really well for this Tottenham team to function. I mean, we saw that last season how much he carried the team. So Nuno needs to find a way to get the best out of him, and I I'm not convinced that that position is that. 
it may be one of those where he's still not fully fit. You know, we have seen this before. There was always that thing going back a few years where he couldn't score in August, that he was a slow starter to seasons. Maybe it's something like that. You know, this is a guy who's had very, very little rest, having had injuries before, played all through the Euros, all the things that went on in the summer as well. I, I would slightly reserve judgment. I don't think it's, you know, necessarily a chronic issue or something that's a massive concern because I would, I would expect he'll probably be back on the score sheet next week at Arsenal. He was so deep. I mean, there, were, there, were, there was there were a couple of times when he got on the ball and there were six Tottenham players ahead of him. Now, I know at times last season that dropping a little bit and Son going beyond him or Lucas Moura going beyond him, and that worked really well. But do you, I mean, do you hear anything that Nuno is telling him to go as deep as he is? Is he taking it on himself? Is it a bit of both? No, I think it is a, a planned strategy. And, you know, in Spurs' eyes, that did work very well last season. As, as you mentioned there, he got loads of assists and many of his goals came from arriving late. The problem with it is that system is dependent on having guys like Son and Mora that you mentioned. Now, yesterday, you've got Son playing, but probably not fully fit. And then you've got Lo Celso as the other wide player. Now, Lo Celso is a talented player, but he's a kind of deep-lying prober or a kind of central midfield 10. He's not a wide player who's going to charge off beyond opposition defenders. So that then makes Kane's job very difficult. If he's dropping in deep and he's got no runners, then there's not a whole lot he can really do. So that feels like a systemic issue, you know, rather than necessarily the positions that Kane's taking up. Do you think Adam Nuno is changing things or trying to change things? I've probably not seen enough of them to to know to know for sure yet, you know, where, where this Tottenham team's going. I, I, th- I think it's a Tottenham squad that is that is changing a lot, you know, and has done a lot since Mauricio Pochettino left the club. And it's it's a transition. It's a it's a transition. It's a hard transition because they don't really, you know, have the, the wealth to compete, you know, in, in the way that the other clubs at the top of the league do, yet we still expect them to be there. And that's going to be difficult. And it's even more difficult when, you know, you've got everything that's gone on with Harry Kane. I think with Harry Kane, he's just continued his form from the Euros. I mean, he was really poor for most of the Euros. I, w- I wonder if it's slightly, I know he's never been quick, but sometimes strikers get that stage at 28, 29, where they just start trying to adapt their game a bit and they maybe go, I know he's played deeper a little bit th- from a tactical point of view the last couple of years, but maybe he's also just thinking, I know I'm not as quick as I was two or three years ago. Do I need to tweak my game again? in order to remain, you know, very much at the top. And that can have a few teething issues while he gets up to speed on that. But, you know, he's also playing like someone who didn't have a full pre-season. And that's either his fault, Tottenham's fault, probably more his fault, you know, by the gist of reporting. I don't think it's a massive surprise that a player who didn't play particularly well at the Euros, didn't have a proper pre-season, who who hasn't been particularly happy in his environment, isn't producing his best football. So yeah, it's a, sh- it's a shame for Spurs, but there's a bigger problem there in terms, you know, yeah, what you're saying about Spurs, you know, we're on the front foot for the first half, let's continue that. The problem is they have a coach, that's not his style. So you're then getting a coach who you're wanting him to do something that probably isn't naturally him. And I think that's a difficult thing going forward for Spurs. Yeah, just a couple of things that, I mean, I think firstly, Nuno... <laughs> He has played a bit more aggressively before, say, like Valencia. At Wolves, I know he had this reputation for, uh, you know, sitting deep and playing on the counter. So it'll be interesting to see how much he adjusts that for Tottenham. I wanted to ask you, Adam, as well, there you mentioned this idea of, you know, adjusting your game as you get a bit older. And 
I know there have been a few murmurings of you know the Wayne Rooney comparison. That was something that happened as he reached his late 20s. And obviously you would have seen a lot of that. Do you, do you see that as a comparison? Is that a concern? Because obviously those weren't really Rooney's best years. Yeah, but sometimes strikers have, particularly strikers who can play a bit, fall into this myth that they should drop deeper and deeper and deeper. Wayne Rooney wasn't that good at it when he went back mm. into central midfield for, for Man United. You know, I mean, at the end of Alex, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's time, he was going to get rid of him. He, that's that mm. final year... He was ready to get rid of him. He played him a bit in central midfield that season and it wasn't really working. Kane's a striker and I don't want to, I don't want to go like full Roy Keane here, but he should be in the penalty <laughs> area more, far more than what he was yesterday. But the other problem is, you know, a lot of Spurs attacks were, there was so much on the counter attack and it was essentially just, here's a really fast player running in behind more often than not. It wasn't as though they had spells of possession where Kane can get himself into the box, crosses coming in. And I think that's probably a bigger issue than his positioning in terms of just Spurs' general play that isn't enough controlled possession in the opposition half that means they're creating enough chances from what I've seen of them anyway. And I think, why well, is it the stat one goal from open play in the Premier League this season? I think that tells you everything about the amount of creativity at Spurs at the moment because it's not like they're missing chances. Yesterday's performance in the second half, more galling because it was against Chelsea, Charlie, bearing in mind the the, the piece you wrote uh, last week on on all the boardroom tensions between the two clubs. It's been an interesting evolution that and that, that boardroom level rivalry probably peaked around that sort of Willian hijacking time, which it, which is an incredible story to revisit and to the point where you know, at that time, there were genuinely people, emotions were running high, sure, but there were people at Spurs who genuinely thought Chelsea had done it to spite them because they had all the, Chelsea had so many attacking players at that time. They really didn't need Willian and Spurs did. He was their main target. It was the summer Bale was going and they were absolutely raging. I mean, now it's, it's not, you know, it's not at those levels, but from people I spoke to for the piece, they, they were like, yeah, I mean, Daniel Levy and Marina would be, a very interesting negotiation to the point they were like that would have to be done over email um, because of you know how relations are which is which I love the idea of that back and forth you know to uh, <laughs> and, who, and who would be cc'd in but yeah I mean it, it definitely it is always more galling uh, to lose to lose to Chelsea uh, for Tottenham and, and vice versa and the interesting thing though with that rivalry is that actually as Spurs have emerged you know as this big six I know some people are uncomfortable with that term but you know it's a thing and you know things like the Super League Chelsea and Spurs have actually had more shared interests over the last few years so they've had to align themselves a bit more so there's actually been a bit of a thawing of those tensions when there was whereas there was a time where it really was there because Chelsea were operating in a different stratosphere but we're starting to look at Spurs' players like Modric and saying yeah we, we want to poach them obviously that didn't happen and there hasn't been a player transferred since Carlo Cudicini in 2009 for a free so not a proper negotiation and you have to go back to 2003 uh, Neil Sullivan the last player who was actually transferred for a fee between the two clubs and who knows when that will happen again it's interesting isn't it Adam that you know Charlie says that they're, they're both known both sides Marina Granovskaya and Daniel Levy as tough negotiators good operators and yet their, their philosophies seem markedly different yeah totally really interesting thing and I think what's quite interesting in the last couple of weeks is the European Club Association which is this uh, body that represents clubs who compete in UEFA competition so Champions League Europa League UEFA Conference League when the Super League happened uh, all the uh, the top six Premier League clubs all of their chief execs and chairmen quit 
in this very dramatic step to move away from the ECA because they were leaving to go into the Super League. Then obviously they had to come back to the table at the conference earlier this month and they had to try and get someone elected to represent, you know, to represent their interests. And the two people who were up for it from the big six clubs in England were Farron Soriano and Daniel Levy. Chelsea backed Soriano over Levy, but the other four, the American-owned clubs, were backing uh, Daniel Levy. But what's interesting with Levy is clearly... The Premier League, he's in this very interesting position where in the, in the Premier League, for anything to happen, you need these 14 votes on your side out of the 20 clubs. And he's in this sort of still quite in-betweeny position where Spurs are, they're part of the big six, but we know they're probably not going to be in the top four all the time. And that makes him a little bit malleable. You know, if I'm Steve Parrish at Crystal Palace or Radrizani at Leeds, he's probably the person I'm leaning on thinking, I need to make sure, you know, he's maybe someone that we can get into and we can influence the way he thinks. But what he is also is he's the person who is most persuasive at a boardroom table. And that makes him very, very valuable for those other big five clubs in the European environment because he's a hard negotiator and he's very persuasive and, he's, and he knows what he's talking about. And the other, you know, the other five clubs don't have that to the same extent, that shared respect. So they've almost said to him, well, you can have this shiny seat at the European table and then maybe you'll also look after us in the Premier League as well. And I think that's what's gone on. And it's put Spurs and Levy into quite a good administrative position, if not necessarily on, if not necessarily on the pitch, but it shows how highly respected he is amongst those big six clubs and how influential Spurs can actually be from, you know, some people might consider everything I've just said in the last two minutes quite a boring thing, but it's quite an interesting detail in terms of how uh, powerful Daniel Levy is um, in the broader scheme of, scheme of European football. Oh, it is interesting. It is interesting, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah, and I do, I referenced that detail in the piece about uh, Chelsea voted for Soriano. I think that is, um, I think that's a nice little wrinkle to it. But yeah, I mean, you know, Spurs, as many people said at the time, how how is it that Spurs are going into this European Super League? You know, they given their lack of trophies, they haven't won the league since 61, etc, etc. But that is all, whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, that is a credit to Daniel Levy, that he has put Spurs in this position whereby they were going to be a founding member of the European Super League that is was meant to be the preserve of all the most powerful clubs in the continent. And as Adam says, he's put himself in a position where you know the biggest teams in the league, they really want him on their side because he is very well respected as an operator at that you know both in the UK but also on a European level as well uh, Charlie thank you very much talk soon thanks a lot thanks, Charlie cheers cheers this is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest we all carry around different stresses big and small and when we keep them bottled up it can start to affect us negatively therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down and if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. 
And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athletic football. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athletic football with no spaces. Let's talk to the Athletic Sam Lee finally on the pod. Sam, of course, covers Manchester City for a City failing to score for only the second time in 41 home matches at the weekend. Uh, that game played against the, the backdrop of a, well, I was going to say, Sam, a, a slightly odd argument between Pep Guardiola and uh, the General Secretary of City's official fan club. Is it slightly odd? Yeah, it is a bit odd. There's a few different strands to it, which I've gone into on our City podcast, if people are that that interested. I'll try and give you an abridged version. But um, basically, Guardiola, if you've paid even slight attention to him over the last few years, if he's got a point to make, he'll answer the question he's been asked. He'll go off-piste, drop in a sarcastic remark about what he really wants to talk about, and then carry on. He said, I'd like more fans to be here at the weekend. And then he said a lot of things about the Southampton game, which were absolutely true. He said, you know, they'll have a week to prepare, which Hassan Ottle said after the game was a factor. He said it'll be a, a difficult game. He said Southampton would press very similarly to Leipzig. So he was absolutely right about that. Um, but he did say again, as he's done many times over the years, he would like more people at City games. Normally he says it about the Champions League. This time it was after a Champions League game and he said it about the Premier League. And then the general secretary of the, of the supporters club said, well, hold on a minute, you know, there's plenty of reasons why we don't go, we can't go to these games. You know, economic reasons, whatever. But Guardiola took massive, massive exceptions to that and said, you know, I, I, I never said I wanted more people to come to the games, which he did. Um, I, I just said, you know, we, we would need the fans and I, I'd like the people to be there. And he went on this kind of impassioned rant, really, which was very convincing. And I can see why a lot of City fans have thought, OK, it was a big misunderstanding. And possibly it was a misunderstanding. Maybe the pandemic's changed his view. And maybe after five years, he appreciates now why City fans don't go to the Champions League games in big numbers. But basically, he was claiming that he hadn't said what he had said and what he'd said several times over the last few years. And I think that's what annoyed a lot of City fans. But why it's strange is because there's a lot of other City fans who are happy to take his word for it and say that there was never an issue. This is played out against City's fans' relationship with the Champions League. And that is a, that is a, that is a very different relationship that they have to some other clubs. And also, I do take the general secretary's the, the City official fan club, I do take his point that, you know, it's the first game of a group stage. The group stages have become a procession for, for the big clubs in the main, and it's expensive. <laughs> the thing is, as well, as, as, as much as all those points you, the, you're right to include there, there's a lot of frustration with City anyway. So if some of the fans are kind of flown off the handle about what Guardiola said, which was even if he was having a bit of a sarcastic barb, which he likes to do quite often, it was only a, it was only a small one, and the reason some city fans kind of took it more seriously than previous times is because they're very frustrated with the club at the moment. You know, there was a lot of frustration because they introduced digital ticketing and fans. To be fair, they thought there'd be more of a problem with that than there was. It actually worked much better than people expected. But there's been problems with uh, a cup scheme. You know, all, there was a way that you could swap tickets with other fans who wanted to go. If you couldn't go in midweek for the reasons you've mentioned and others, you could give it to a friend. This this year, City via a reply on the Twitter account just said, oh, we're not doing that for cup games this year with a thumbs up emoji, which loads of fans hated. And they had to row back on that because it wasn't in the terms and conditions. So they didn't do that. There's other issues with um, on hold times at the ticket office. 
a five, five hours or more with fans trying to ring up and sort out what's going on with their season tickets or other tickets because of these problems and they can't get through. So they're really annoyed. And there's, these are some of the reasons they're not going to games. And then when Guardiola says, you know, we want more people, they're like, well, hold on a minute. I actually do think it might be a misunderstanding. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, only he knows yeah. the intent of his words. You know, generally I'm pretty sympathetic to, you know, fans complaining and, and things like that. I thought the comments from the secretary were quite odd when he starts saying things like, you know, you should stick to coaching. You know, we don't want people who are working in sport to just do their job, go home and never say anything interesting. I think if the message from uh, the secretary, was it Kevin, Kevin Parker, had been more, a bit more conciliatory and a, a little bit more respectful in its tone, then maybe Guardiola would have been a little bit less bristling in his own response. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that probably um, wound him up the wrong way. But again, I can probably see why Kevin was annoyed because it's come on the back of years of Guardiola comments about not not all the time, but it's been known to happen. And with all this backdrop of the, the ticket, the ticket issues and the, the 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 customer service, he's probably thought he's probably gone from one to a hundred straight away. But obviously, what Guardiola's then done on Friday and after the game on Saturday is dug his heels in even more and said, oh, "I've never said these things." And he said, he, when he referred to Kevin Parker, he was like, "This man," and he's like, "Mr. Parker," which we know, you know, he said, "Mr. Tebas, Mr. Scalari, Mr. Perez." You know, you know what he, you know what he means when he says these kind of things. So, he, I thought going into the press conference on Friday, I thought he would talk about all the things he loves about the club, how he's one of the fans, how he understands the history, which he did say. But I thought he'd just say that. But obviously he was a bit more combative than that. And that's what's kind of rubbed me up the wrong way a bit because I don't think he needed to, to go that extra distance, especially when you're arguing against you know, one of your own fans. Yeah. I also said to, uh, I was talking to Chris Wilder on, on Saturday, and I also made the point that these things are going to come out from time to time. If you, if you are managing a Champions League club and doing 120 press conferences a week, stra- strangely enough, sometimes these things will come out because you're talking so much. Yeah, absolutely. My issue with it was Kevin Parker. It, I felt it was too patronising in that sort of, you're this man who works on the grass. Go and work on the grass and give us something nice to watch mm. on Saturday. And I don't want to hear, you know, anything else really. And I thought that was, I thought that was a bit of a shame. But it was just, it just feels like one of those things where it's like, just pick up the phone to each other, guys, have a chat, everything will be all right. Well, why hasn't that happened over the last five years? Yeah, well, those higher up at City ought to now just take it, take into account how disgruntled some fans are at how they're being treated over their tickets and ticket offices. And as you say, you know, cup, sch- cup schemes are a bugbear yeah. on most fans, aren't they? And how they get treated, yeah. no matter what what division you're in. And yeah, like a lot of City fans obviously have, have, have they've been happy to take Pep's side, but also they've if they can make it about the media, then they will, which a lot of fans, yeah, a lot yeah. of fans of clubs will do. Because if yeah. if it means they don't have to have any kind of introspection, that they can say, well, yeah. this is the media blowing out mm. portion, and you know Kevin's got criticised for that. They said he shouldn't have spoken to the media, but you're right. Like what this conversation does allow, and City fans will be annoyed that we're talking about this into the, you know, the second week now. But what they will be, what they should realise, I think, is the fact that. It, does give us the opportunity to talk about these issues, which does affect a lot of fans. And there are a lot of fans who are annoyed about what Guardiola said. And there's more fans who are annoyed about, yeah, you know, the ticket office at the moment. So if that uh, throws a bit of a spotlight onto it, then I think that's a good thing. And and as far as City are on the pitch are are concerned, they've been slow starters before under Guardiola. It's not that slow a start, is it? 10 points from five games. Yeah, it's not not that slow a start. What, what What I need to work out really is, is it going to be like 2019-20 when they finish second and we're still very good but not good enough when they're very good and score five goals and then the next week they, they can't find a breakthrough? I'm not convinced that's going to be the case yet. But um, yeah, the Southampton game at the weekend, probably one of the more interesting things that Guardiola said about it, apart from the tactical reasons, 
was he said um, they were meant. He guess he said they were perhaps mentally tired, and I thought, well, it's a bit early for that. Um, why would that be? How can you avoid that? So that's something to keep an eye on. And obviously, they've got Chelsea away, PSG away, and Liverpool away in the next week. So if if that if they don't go to plan, you, I can see myself being back on this podcast, and I would have to be saying, look, don't worry, it's early in the season, and all this kind of thing, which I will stand by. I do think it's very early for that, but you can see things getting out of hand quite quickly if. If, certainly if they would have the problems. Is that a Euros thing, mentally tired? Well, they did have a lot of Euro players. They did have a lot of Euro players. They, they did have more than anybody else. And they had a couple of players of the Copa America as well, so possibly. But I don't know. I, I'm not sure what, what it would be about. Maybe it's just after, you know, beating Leicester and beating Leipzig. And maybe that's the beauty of all these good seasons they've had when they've just done that, done that, done that, and won and won and won. And we take it for granted. And now it, it's a little bit tougher. But um, I think it was a big tactical thing on... Saturday against Southampton, they pressed in a way that didn't suit City's game at all. And they had all of their ball-playing defenders out. Zinchenko, Stones, uh, Laporte was out, Rodri was out as well. You know, these are the guys that help you get the ball out of the back in the, these different pressing situations. And they, they didn't have that. But again, if Chelsea do that and Liverpool do that, which they probably will, it, there'll be a few difficult games from coming up. Yeah, only thing I took away from Saturday, um, which is a bit sad actually, because he's been one of the best players in the Premier League. I wonder whether we're seeing a tipping point for Fernandinho who has been, you know, so fantastic. I saw a bit of the game on Saturday. I thought he started to look his age, um, which I've never said before about someone who I think is absolutely brilliant. And I think that's a problem for City, if that's a trend that continues. Could have just been an off day, but I think if that's something that continues, then I think that's an issue. What I would say is, I don't I don't think as many teams will put him under the same kind of pressure and limit his options as Southampton did. But if he does have to play against... Chelsea and Liverpool. This was the guy who was picked for the, the Champions League semi-final against PSG instead of Rodri, which was a shock just a few months ago. It, it now might get to the stage where, yeah, you wouldn't want that to happen again against Chelsea and Liverpool because it could be a big problem. But I'm not sure if it's an age thing or it's just a kind of... Like, anybody would have struggled in that system, but I guess, we'll, I guess we'll find out as the months go on. You might be right. Sam, thank you. Adam, good stuff. See you soon. Uh, right, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. To read all the articles we've discussed today, head to theathletic.com slash football pod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. And then Dan and Flo are here tomorrow and I'm back on Thursday on this feed with the Business of Sport podcast with Matt Slater. Bye for now. <laughs>